Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! And welcome to the relatively non-evil edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined as ever by Slate Moneybox columnist Jordan Weissman. Hello, Felix. Hello, Jordan. And, okay, are you ready for this? We have awesomeness in the studio here. We have the one and only Heather Long. Hi, Heather. Howdy. Where, from whence do you hail? What's your professional <laughs> affiliation? Here, I thought you were asking my hometown. <laughs> from whence? <laughs> and what's your hometown? Oh, New Orleans, Louisiana. Nice. So, Wait, from Noah? Yeah, oh, there man. you go. Nice. That. But, uh, most days I can be found at CNN, specifically at CNN Money, writing about the stock market and the U.S. economy. Oh, stock market. I, we, we try not to talk about the stock market too much on this show, but you never know. We might the, the, It <laughs> might make an appearance now that Heather is here. Felix, we bring on Heather as a guest, and you neg her immediately. <laughs> the stock Stocks. market. No Stocks. hazing at Slate Money. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, bonds are where the action is. Stocks okay, are just anyway. fluffy things. We, all talk, we may or may not talk about stocks. We are going to talk about, um, I guess... I want to say the efficient markets hypothesis and like what happens to a company when it gets a takeover bid, which is an, a, an above market price. Like what does the board think and what and and what happens? Because this just happened with Unilever, which got this takeover bid from Kraft. We're going to talk a little bit about that. There's lots of interesting angles to that story. We are also going to talk about everybody's favorite subject, which is bank fees and yes. how they only ever seem to be going in one direction. It's not the direction we want them to be going in. Um, but there is a big story in the news this week. I mean, we are meant to be really talking about the business and finance news of the week. And the business and finance news of the week seems to be Uber, Uber, and Uber. Yeah. Um, over over the weekend, this woman, Susan Fowler, came out with a blog post, Jordan. Dropped a bomb on Uber. So I just want to preface this. Uh, this is not Uber's worst week ever. Because I'm pretty sure that was last month with Delete Uber when they lost about 200,000 accounts because of political outrage. So, I mean, but, so I want to stop you right there. Okay. And say, like, people were. The Delete Uber thing became quite big among people who were in a certain corner of Twitter. Um, and I want to get a feel, first of all, for insofar as that d- 
did harm Uber. Yeah. Did it harm Uber just because you had X number of people deleting their accounts and therefore X fewer people using Uber? Or was the harm like different slash bigger than that? So I actually think, and, and I want to, I'm going to connect this to what we're, to kind of these other news stories this week, but I actually think it it is because it was backward progress. It was rather than just the kind of typical like PR disaster that Uber just kind of, you know, dances through all the time. I mean, how many times have we talked about Uber having an awful week and they seem to come out unscathed, kind of Teflon in the end? Um, this was a time where it had consequences in terms of their users, in terms of their actual business. Um, so wait, do we know that? I mean, I know that, that a bunch of I know that a bunch of um, you know socially conscious types who I mean, nearly all of whom, in my experience, tend to use Lyft anyway because they all hated Uber anyway. Went and deleted the Uber app off their accounts. I don't believe that those were like big power Uber users, and I kind of have this gut feeling that the number of installs on on phones like if that went down from if a bunch of people who weren't really using it much deleted the app how much difference does that really make well what what indication and i'll i assume one indication that they actually were maybe switching was that lyft's app shot to the top so people were downloading lyft so it, w- it wasn't just uber was getting deleted it was that their competitor was suddenly getting business so that suggests maybe there actually was some churn in the business but you're about to say something happened. yeah i think you're right on the on the data indicates there there's a problem and the other thing that really struck me is that after both the uh, delete uber the jfk kind of taxi strike incident a month ago and then this week uber tried to send out emails to people who had deleted the account basically begging them to come back and in my mind you don't do that if you're uh, you know, oh, whatever, we're just going to grow bigger, we're doing fine. I mean, literally, they wrote this week to some of the people who said they deleted it over the Susan Fowler comments, the sexist comments, and they wrote this note saying that they're deeply hurting over this. Yeah, I mean, and I don't think Travis Kalanick has ever really deeply exactly. hurt over anything. But so we should actually talk about what this essay said. And I mean, this former Uber engineer wrote about, it was called like one very strange year at Uber. Um and it is basically about how Uber was a unprofessional den of sexual harassment. <laughs> That's she wrote about how on her first day she joined this engineering team and her manager started texting or started writing to her about how he was in an open relationship and more or less propositioning her for sex. And then she went and reported that to HR, who said they yes, this was sexual harassment, but we're not going to punish him because he's a high performer and this is his first infraction. It came out that as she spent more time at the company. This wasn't his first infraction. Lots of women had experienced this. And from there, things only kind of snowballed and got stranger. At one point, she had a great performance review that got reversed because essentially the manager didn't want to be her to be able to transfer to another team because he looked better if he had more women on his staff. It it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. Uh, Here's someone that really jaw dropped for me. I mean, there was so much in there that you've just said. But at the very bottom of this lengthy blog post, she relays a story of how something very simple happens a lot of companies that her team, the bunch of the engineers, where everyone was going to get a leather jacket, you know, nice Uber leather jacket to promote, you know, team groupie uh, love, and. Basically, there were only six women on the team and 120 men. And her manager wrote to her and said, sorry, we're not going to buy jackets because, because for women. Because we get a discount on the men's jackets. We I don't mean, get a so discount bizarre. on the women's jackets. So it would be unfair. Yeah. It wouldn't be equal to give the women jackets. But yeah, the, the, the big news, I mean, obviously, the, the post was a lot of news. It caused a lot of um, heart-rending inside and outside the company. And there are two aspects of this which are fascinating to me. Number one is that the whole world glommed onto this. Yeah. If 
Susan Fowler had written this blog post about like a really strange year working at Alcoa, you know, everyone would have said, oh, my God, that, you know, this is very bad for you. But there wouldn't have been this crazy sort of global PR pile on um, because there is something about Uber. And we saw this, at Heather, as you were in- indicating uh, last month as well, when there was a one hour taxi strike at JFK to protest the immigration ban. And then like a couple of hours later, Uber turned off surge pricing or something like everyone like just automatically thought the worst of Uber. And there was a huge number of people out there who are really happy to take any opportunity to pile onto Uber. And this is not good for a company which wants to go public. And all companies ultimately want to be thought well of. And I think the reaction to this post really brought home to Travis Kalanick, the Uber CEO, just how much people hate his company. And I do think he quite genuinely has sort of evolved in some way to think that maybe he maybe just being hated and feared is not enough that it's quite a good idea if you're going public to for, to to be a relatively non-evil company i think yeah so again we, for a long time uber has seemed like teflon right and it's always well, no it's been hated but it's well, been so, growing anyway exactly and that's the thing there's always been this question of you know do these scandals actually matter do do the pub does the public perception of this company does the fact that travis kalanick has these libertarian views or cozies up to trump does that matter you know in the end people are going to keep using the app and it seems like you know people have been waiting for like the scandal that would really bring it down and it's not that instead what we're, we're seeing is it's kind of the accumulation of problems the accumulation of these image issues that's actually maybe subtracting some value from the company. And I I think it's a little bit different. Okay. I think that so long as Uber is a private company mm-hmm. and is basically controlled by Travis and his pet board who do whatever he wants him to do, he will do whatever he wants to do and he doesn't care. But in his last funding round, which we talked about on Slate Money, um, there was a bunch of like very high interest debt components to that round, yeah. which he starts having to pay a lot of debt if he doesn't go public. And... So now the IPO has gone from being a sort of thing which he would like to do probably at some point in the future, perhaps, to something which is actually a financial necessity for him because it becomes very, very expensive for him if he doesn't IPO. And there are things which you can get away with as a private company which you can't get away with as a public company. And I think that what we're seeing now with him hiring Eric Holder and trying to do all of these big high-profile investigations into what's going on and like bursting into tears in an all-hands meeting and this kind of stuff is an indication of, oh, shit. I need to go public, and if I'm going to go public, I don't want the entire risk factors bit of my S1, my my IPO filing, to be all about like how evil I am. Can I? I want you to actually elaborate on that a little bit because I'm I'm curious. Why do you think that going public makes it harder for them to continue getting away with shit? Like, why is it, what what is it about being public as opposed to a a giant private company that allows them to be evil or not or requires them not to be evil? I suppose. I think we're going to talk about this a little bit in the next segment, actually, when we talk about Unilever. Um, There are evil public companies, but I think that the structure of public companies, and especially the structure of IPOs, makes it that you want the senior management of the company to be making certain noises about stakeholders and that kind of thing. I mean, Heather, you, you talk to these like you know do goody ceo types all the time it's kind of a necessity these days as a public company isn't it 
yeah, I just look at what happened to Chipotle. You know? And so it was, it was the fact that all of a sudden there was this tipping point. It wasn't the first you know, um, bad food crisis scare they had. It was the fact that they had a series of them and suddenly consumers just ran away. And the stock price crashed, and it, 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 the company still hasn't recovered. So everybody's really nervous about these tipping point moments. And I think actually the there, there's something else going on as well, which is that when any kind of scandal happens to a public company, um, the first thing that every journalist does is they look at the stock price, mm-hmm. yeah, and then they say, you know, this scandal happened, and then the stock price plunged by X percent, even when it's like zero point two percent, it's always a plunge, and um, and what happens is that the company and the stock price of the company become conflated, and that people start thinking great things about companies with high stock prices and crap things about com- companies with low stock prices, and when you're private. You know, there is no such thing as a stock price. And whatever the sort of private valuation that you may or may not be able to make money at or raise money at is a kind of secret thing which no one needs to know about and doesn't have any effect on the public, on the way that the public thinks about your company. The minute that you have a stock price listing, people start conflating you with the public with, with, with your stock price. This is why people think that Tesla is so great. It's because the stock price is high. I, I think also just kind of following on that, you know, Correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're going into an IPO, I imagine that volatility, like, you know, a sense of of chaos at your company is probably the worst thing. Like if you're trying to debut on the market and no one knows what's happening because you're suddenly, you know, being buffeted by scandal after scandal, that can't be positive for your debut on the markets, right? And so what they're doing at Uber is they're trying to sort of cut this off at the past by hiring. But this is the weird thing. They've he's. Kalanick has announced an investigation into these allegations. He has made no indication that he doesn't believe them. He's crying in public. He's doing all of the right things up to a point. And then what he does is he gets Ariana Huffington, who's one of his board members, to to do what she calls an independent investigation, except for there's really very little independent about this in, investigation yeah. because <laughs> she's on the board. Um, the other person doing the investigation is the head of HR and Eric Holder. Don't forget Eric Holder. And then and then they <laughs> write, bring in Covington and Burling. You always yeah. have to get an outside law firm no. to do this. Um, and Eric Holder. But Eric Holder has worked for Uber in the past. He knows where his bread is buttered. Yeah. this is. But this is actually, in a lot of ways, Uber acting like a public company. <laughs> this is like, this is the classic move for like, you know, a company gets into some big scandal over, you know, bribery or something. And they bring in like sort of semi-independent. This, but this, yeah, this reminds me very much of the when when 21st century fox got into trouble with roger ailes and yes. they bring in this law firm to like investigate the allegations against him but i really do get the feeling that this uber investigation is less independent than that one was oh well, you're having being huffington what do you call huffington washing huff washing huff washing and that sounds awful anyway yeah i think the other number that really just stands out to me obviously they're a private company we haven't seen their financials but bloomberg has done a nice job trying to get their hands on leaks on this company and one of the things they reported last year was that uh, uber only makes a very small profit per ride i mean they said 19 cents a ride, which is nothing. And so I guess for me, you know, when we say does 200,000 people deleting the Uber app matter, I just keep thinking about that 19 cents and whether that's the right number or not, you know, we don't actually know yet. So, but so, so that's like 20,000 bucks. It's nothing. 
Sure, it's minimal, but you're loft, still talking about this, this company, in my mind, is a lot like a Walmart or a McDonald's. You have to get a lot of people through the door because it's a low margin business at the moment. It depends on how you calculate margins. The, the 19 cents is the difference between two extremely large numbers and and depending on what you're subtracting. You know, the idea behind Uber has always been that they have one sort of underlying technology which scales at relatively low cost and if they can get big enough, then, then they become a license to print money. So far, there's not a lot of evidence that this is true, but um, I guess we'll see in their S1 if and when it ever appears whether whether that's believable or not. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day, and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. But on the subject of warm and fluffy companies, as Lee Gallagher said last week, Unilever is one of the warmer and fluffier, you know, $100 billion companies out there. Um, there aren't that many $100 billion companies out there, but Unilever, Unilever which is this Anglo-Dutch consumer packaged goods giant, has done an incredible job over the past 10 to 20 years of becoming very sort of socially responsible and caring about a whole bunch of stakeholders. And it goes all the way back to Lord Leverhulme back in Victorian times in England, who built housing in Liverpool for all of his workers to make sure that they lived in sanitary conditions and, and this kind of stuff. And so you have this warm and fluffy company called Unilever, which is, you know, it's a, still a big public company. It's about as warm and fluffy as they get. And it gets a takeover bid. Yeah. And the takeover bid comes from whatever the opposite of a warm and fluffy company is. Yeah, just like it comes from private Heinz. equity Frankenstein. Exactly. <laughs> it, it comes from from 3G, basically, which is this Brazilian private equity shop which controls Kraft Heinz, which is obviously another big CPG company. A little bit smaller, actually, than Unilever in terms of enterprise value. Yeah, but but so it's like a piranha. Like it's a <laughs> going after. and And well, yeah, I mean, so they... They used to be perfectly nice companies. Like Heinz was a perfectly nice company, but then it gets bought by yeah. 3G and then it's all of these efficiencies. All of the managers get their budgets slashed to zero at the beginning of each year and they have to justify every single dollar they spend, all of this kind of stuff. Um, and so the 3G people are looking at Unilever and going, ooh, if we just took our like Brazilian cost-cutting to, to, to Unilever, <laughs> just imagine how much more profits we could make. Um, and so they they go over to Unilever, offer $143 billion for, for Unilever, and this is where things get interesting. Yeah. Um, a bunch of different things happen, but let's start with 
this the the very simple thing, which is that they go up to the board of Unilever, they say we'd like to buy you for 143 billion dollars, and then the board has to say yes or no. Yeah, and the board was basically like hell fucking no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that was I think so they they I was I was reading up on this apparently particularly in England there's like sort of an art to writing these letters the language is all very stylized and means very specific things and they were like there is like no strategic interest here there is none of it like every single thing that you would say like no way Sherman-esque no how they just loaded into this letter and were like I don't care how much money you were throwing at us this is not happening um so Heather now obviously there are minor differences but really really only very minor in in sort of governance norms between the UK and the US but in general um if you are a member of the board of directors of a public company and you get a takeover bid at a significant premium to your sh- current share price, um, how, to what degree can you say no? And to what degree at some point do you just have to say yes because they're offering so much money? Yeah, I think you're right. And it was kind of interesting. The U.S. press sort of immediately glammed on this, like when you, what you were saying, hey, this is a pretty good deal. You know, you, these shareholders are going to make a lot of money. Surely this is going to go through. Like this is just a starting point that they've thrown out in any deal. And they're just going to keep talking and ratcheting the price up and up. But that was um, not really the reaction that was happening in the European press. You know, they were kind of looking at this like. Unilever uh, is, is um, I need to say this, a very European company. It's got two headquarters. One's in England, one's in Holland. I think it's in Rotterdam. The CEO is also Anglo-Dutch himself. And so the more sort of touchy-feely corporate governance stuff is really built into it in that sense as well. Um, One of the interesting things about this particular bid is that more or less everyone seems to agree that the reason it failed so spectacularly was because it got leaked um, to the Financial Times. And... So when the Financial Times reported on the rumors that Kraft Times was interested in Unilever, um, obviously everyone started phoning up Kraft Times and said, is this true? Are you making a bid for Unilever? And they had to say, um, "And actually, yes, it's true. Um, but what that did was that it forced um, the bid to become public and it forced the talks, which were in very, very early stage, to get sort of like very rapidly accelerated to we are in a serious takeover bid stage. And that acceleration was so fast and the two sides hadn't got any time to get to know each other and the whole thing kind of fell apart. Also, also, I really like this story. Even Typically, I don't find giant corporate takeovers that entertaining. But this one I did because it seems like there, there's a, a story about like economic nationalism happening here, <laughs> right? Like one of the reasons this, this story got so big so quickly in the press is because Heinz Craft has this really terrible history in England. Um, and like I start, and I kind of, I apologize, Felix, but I kind of fell into a rabbit hole. I feel like maybe your Britishness, though, you'll, you'll, you'll grant me this, talking about the great Cadbury scandal of 2010. And what happened was Kraft Heinz showed up and bought this quintessentially British company. Um, and, you know, chocolate, chocolate. Exactly. Yes. They make the Cadbury cream egg. Right. And they made some promises ahead of time. What they, you know, jobs, they'd keep things like that. And they just could not follow through on them. And they ended up closing factories. And then at one point they changed the chocolate that was being used in the cream egg. It, all kinds of stuff that ticked off the British public. You had eventually, um, you know, members of parliament were dragging Kraft Heinz's executives on to talk to them about what on earth happened during this. They ended up changing the law in the UK about takeovers to to prevent things like what happened, the kind of, you know, the job losses that happened in the aftermath of the takeover. 
people hate this hate Kraft Heinz in England. It's just like a villain. And so part of this was just like people, you know, the it leaking, like you said, Felix, and the entire UK but kind but, of. But it's not just it leaking. Leaks aren't things which just kind of happen. Some there needs to be a leaker. Well, and yeah. this is and this is my point is that leaks are very tactical things. And so what happens? What pretty obviously happened in this case is that someone within Unilever leaked the in the Kraft Heinz interest to the FT in the knowledge that the leak itself would probably scupper the entire deal. Yeah. And that is fascinating. And I'm me. kind of okay with that here. I'm kind of okay <laughs> with the idea of like, if an entire country absolutely hates you, coming and buying a company that country really likes, like, you know, political, I'm kind of fine with that as a political so, value. Okay, so, yeah, I have okay. A question, <laughs> so I have a question <laughs> yeah. for, I have a question for Heather, yeah. which well, is the, um, the same guys, the, the evil 3G guys, came in and bought, Anheuser-Busch a couple years ago in the U.S. And you had the same kind of reaction among um, economic nationalists in the U.S. Like, how could this great American company become a subsidiary of a Brazilian private equity shop? Um, and then kind of, I feel like I haven't heard anything about it since. Um, you know, in with the benefit of a couple of years hindsight, did how how has that deal affected the public perception of Budweiser? Well, um, beer is not my forte, but let me say what I think is interesting about Unilever and where we're at right now. And that is, um, I keep asking myself, would this have even happened if it weren't for Brexit? Um, so this is a really good question. And because, this is, this is my, you know, the yeah. value of the UK currency has plunged. This is the third major big hostile takeover of a British company that was attempted since Brexit. So, so yeah, I do think that, there was a major component of just simple FX arbitrage here. And this again yeah. comes back to my question of what should the board of directors of Unilever um, consider when they get this kind of a bid? Um, because when the US press, as you said, Heather was like, oh, well, the bid is so much above market and it's obviously just an opening bid and it will probably go even higher. What they're looking at is the price in pounds of the, um, of the Unilever share price. Um, in dollars, Unilever looked pretty cheap because there was this huge um, drop in the value of the pound. On top of that, it's not just FX. Um, there's just like a liquidity thing going on. Um, 3G, who are these evil private equity billionaires, are BFF with Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett has 80 billion dollars in cash lying around and he hates having 80 billion dollars in cash lying around because he gets no return on that cash he really wants to put that 80 billion dollars to work and so this is a way of basically using that warren buffett 80 billion dollars and putting it to good use so you have this this sort of perfect storm of number one this person just sitting on 80 billion dollars of cash which he really wants to spend on he's he's been saying that his elephant gun is loaded for years now and he hasn't done any of he hasn't done a big acquisition since like the railways a few years ago and then the second thing is is the the cheap pound and they're like oh my god all of this financial there are lots of financial reasons why it made sense but similarly for exactly the same reasons i think it makes it a lot easier 
for Unilever to say no. Yes, and that kind of goes back to what you were saying, Jordan, because as I was reading through some of the UK and, and Irish reports on this, it, it was um, this disbelief that, oh my gosh, if, if 3G comes in, they're going to fire a bunch of workers yeah. in London, no doubt about it, and, and throughout Europe. And this is at exactly a time after Brexit that Britain is trying to hold on to people. Yeah, I mean, there's this sort of <laughs> irony too, right? Like the 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 nationalism that was that led to Brexit and made the deal possible from like a foreign exchange Right. perspective is also what then scuppers it because everyone's like Fuck exactly no. but it's not even that though i think it's 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 just that boards are more likely to say yes to deals when there's a strategic rationale for them and they're less financial. likely to say yes to deals when it's just a sort of tactical financial engineering thing interesting is that is that newer because i feel like for a long time financial engineering was basically the logic behind a lot of MA. like when did that did that change well, I feel like it, it's it's it still makes sense, and it still is the logic behind a lot of M and A. But it, the question is, if you're the target, yeah, how compelling do you find the financial engineering logic of the acquirer? And the answer is not very. All you really care about is like what's going to happen to me and my company. And yes, you care about the share price, but you also care about you and your company. Yeah. And it's pretty obvious that in this case the sort of corporate heart and soul of Unilever would be lost. And you can and you can say, you know, you can't just buy the corporate heart and soul of Unilever because Warren Buffett happens to have more cash than he normally does. You know, we need a better <laughs> we meet we need a better reason than that. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Heather, talking about evil companies, wait, what, what is the company we all love to hate more than any other company? You mean Goldman Sachs? No. <laughs> well, okay, so this is interesting, right? Like, everyone loves to hate Goldman Sachs. And I actually remember seeing a few weeks ago, there was this big complaint about how, you know, Goldman Sachs is misusing all of the money which it gets from American depositors. And I'm like, Goldman Sachs doesn't have any exactly. money from American depositors. Exactly. <laughs> but the reason Goldman Sachs is like, uh, what's the word? Um, Vampire squid. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Goldman Sachs stands for like yes. evil banks. Even it's, when it's a, the synecdoche for all evil banks is that, something like that. Yeah, they, but yeah. So what? What are the evil banks up to these days? Goldman mm. Sachs to want yeah, be you know weirdly excluded. From weirdly excluded. Yeah, here's a surprise. They're trying to make more money. And in particular, though, they're trying to make more money off us. So make more money off the people who have um, bank accounts, like something really, really simple. People putting their money in the bank, going to the ATM to try to withdraw money. And so um, I broke the news this week that the three biggest banks in the United States that actually hold 
regular Joe, you know, operate on Main Street. So J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo made $6.4 billion last year just on ATM and overdraft fees. So, and, know, that, and that was up how much from the year before? Yeah, it was up about $300 million from the year before. So not, you know, not a huge jump, but it's certainly going up. And actually, if you look at the line items, I got the chance to talk to J.P. Morgan because I said, wait a minute, why is your ATM fee revenue up over 20%? last year. Like, that's a big jump. Oh, what did they say? Well, that's just great. So at first they wrote back and they were like, oh, we'll look into it. So then they get back and they said, well, um, we raised at the end of 2015 our ATM fees for our foreign ATM fees, 50 cents. And so at first I thought, oh, are more people going to the Bahamas or going on vacation somewhere? And then, of course, what they mean by foreign fee is anytime you go to an ATM that doesn't say J.P. Morgan Chase, we're going to charge you an armload of money to get your own money out of the bank, out of the ATM. Yeah. So... This is um, something... I mean, everybody hates this stuff. And, yeah. and what I started looking at it a year ago because Bernie Sanders, of all people, actually made it a campaign issue. He went around, he gave a speech last year saying that if he were elected president, he would cap ATM fees at $2. So it couldn't be... I mean, that's not... That's still you know a bit of a hit, but it's certainly lower than the average now is like $4.50-some. It's gone up for 10 straight years. And that's one of the reasons that the ATM fees are going up is because under Dodd-Frank, um, that essentially capped one of the great sort of licenses to print money that the banks used to have, which was the overdraft fees. Um, over, they used to just whack everyone with overdraft fees. And then under Dodd-Frank, you're not allowed to whack anyone with an overdraft fee unless they've explicitly given you their permission <coughs> to whack them with an overdraft fee. The banks were surprisingly successful at getting their customers to opt into these overdrafts, uh, much more successful than I thought they would be. But even so, their ability to increase overdraft fee revenue has been hampered by Dodd-Frank. And so that leaves... Um, Although it's still going ATM up. Yeah. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's be clear. Yeah, fees are sort of, they're like kind of, it's, you know, fees are like water getting around a rock to some degree at banks, right? Like where if it, you stop at one place, it'll kind of... So there's, there's, a, there's a very big picture way of looking yeah. at this that I like to think about is that the banks say, and you can quibble with the amount, but let's just take them at their word for the sake of it. The banks say that it costs them roughly $300 a year to operate a checking account. Um, There are basically two ways that you can pay for that $300 a year and make that checking account profitable. Number one is fees. And then the other one is interest income, you know, interest margin that if you pay no interest or very little interest on the uh, on the checking account, and then you lend out that money at 5%, on a mortgage, say, then you're making five percent on that money, and you can, and and that's historically where fees have, where banks have made mo- most of their money. Right now, we're in a very low interest rate environment, and on top of that, there's relatively little demand for loans, and especially for consumer loans from banks. And so, their interest income is coming down. They're finding it harder to make that three hundred dollars a year from lending out the money, and therefore, they're having to raise fees. Yeah. I also, you know, they're obviously ATM fees are like one of the great irritations of being, you know, of dealing with a bank. But I, you know, I don't know how morally, how angry I really get about them. Right? I mean, part of part of the rationale is that 
I mean, well, the first thing you have to realize about them is it's just like the ATM business is really weird and complicated. Like every time you make a transaction, there are like four different parties involved. Like there's a lot of money flowing different places. It takes a lot of people to make, get your money out of that machine. And that has to be paid for. But beyond that, like, you know, having these fees, it does, I think to some extent, it has it seemingly has encouraged the growth of ATMs and kind of the, you know, the encouraged access to them. You know, after it used to be that you couldn't have surcharges, like in the 90s, like that was the, the networks actually banned. ATM surcharges, which are one of the many fees that are involved in this. And that stopped in 96. And you continue to see a, a lot of growth afterwards. So I feel like to some extent, the market... Never mind the fact that banks are just doing away with human tellers. Well, that, and that's, that's part why of we've it. had a lot yeah, of but growth by, by, on ATM but, 90, but by 96, human tellers had, were already disappearing to a large extent. But, so, and also, but, like, yeah, no, let's be clear about yeah. this. No one has got cash from a human teller in living memory. That's not what human tellers are for anymore. Yeah, exactly. They were more, by 96, human tellers were around to make deposits for, or for people taking deposits. That, or at least that was what the sort of And now increasingly the, the ATM machines, which is one of those things I always promised myself They're I would never say. say, and now I've gone and said, um, accept deposits too. Yeah. And yeah. this is good because it frees up the human tellers to actually do much more value-added yeah. work. Well, let me throw a little bit of a wrench in this discussion. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I certainly hear what you're saying, and and, and you know, I never thought I'd, I'd hear slate money be so um, you know, supportive <laughs> of bank fees. But uh, for me, so I lived for several years in the UK. And in Britain, you it's actually, um, you can't charge these ATM fees. I mean, it, it's, I'm just going to oversimplify it. But basically, they, their regulatory agency ruled about a decade ago that charging these fees was anti-competitive. And so you can't do it. So if I am, you know, bank at HSBC, I can go to Barclays or one of the other banks in the UK and I can withdraw my money at that other ATM, that foreign ATM for free. Okay. And so that's been in existence. So there are other models. It's not like this could never happen. We can never have growth of ATM machines without these fees. Um, so I guess, well, a question, like, how has that, do we have any, like, studies on, like, what that's done to accessibility to, like, ATMs and things like okay, that? Okay, so here's the, <laughs> here's the unintended consequence of that. Um, you're absolutely right. I'm English. I know this system very well. And I was shocked when I moved to the US and suddenly started getting all of these ATM fees. And I was like, why can't we just do it like in England? In England, it's much better. Um, and then a few years after I moved to the US, this huge scandal explodes in the UK about something called payment protection insurance. I don't know if you remember this, but it was basically the single biggest retail bank scandal in the world of all time. It was tens of billions of dollars in bank in ridiculous bank fees that the banks had sort of secretly managed to charge all of their customers in the UK, which is not nearly as big of a country as the US. It was massive. And it cost the banks an, an enormous amount of money. It was this huge scandal. It really hurt their capital. Basically, what Jordan just said about like, water flowing around rocks is exactly right. They got banned from charging ATM fees, which are relatively transparent. And I think one of the reasons why people hate ATM fees is the same as the reason that they hate um, high gas prices is because they're extremely salient. You see them very obviously. You know, you get $100 out of the ATM and you pay $104. You're know, like, what is going on? Um, but if you ban them, you wind up getting things like these PPI scandals instead. 
you, you bring up transparency, and I think that's like an important divider between an ATM fee, for instance, and overdraft, right? Yeah. Overdraft fees are infuriating because a lot of people don't realize they're ending up, and then there used to be an issue with, you know, banks doing it without permission, um, and people get trapped in this cycle of overdraft fees piled on top of overdraft mm-hmm. fees. Whereas an ATM fee, you see it at the beginning of the transaction. Overdraft fees also, we should mention, are overwhelmingly charged to the people who can't afford to pay them. Yes. Uh, they're, they're incredibly regressive. ATM fees are a little bit more akin to a sort of flat tax. But yeah, I feel like in the long term, we're, we're all using less cash than we used right. to. That's the takeaway and, here. <laughs> and and also life is, you know, crime in most of America is coming down. Like they, it used to be that you didn't want to carry too much cash on you because if you were robbed, then you would lose that money. Now that the fear of being robbed and losing your money or losing your, you know, is, is, going down i feel that people are more comfortable carrying more money on them like they do in japan atm fees aren't really an issue in japan because people just always carry like thousands of dollars of cash on them and it's no big (laughs) deal you know yeah i I think the other thing is if you're if you are really concerned about this issue of, of of fees i think there is one deep kind of problem in banking it does point to, which is just the lack of competition and concentration in the industry. You know, there was uh, the GAO, uh, Government Accountability Office, did a study back in 2013 um, where they just talked to people, you know, companies, banks who run ATMs, and they said, how do you determine your pricing? And the number one thing they said is just, well, how much competition is in the market? How mm-hmm. many of them exactly. are around? And so, you know, the extent that there just, you know, are like five big banks or whatever, like there just aren't a lot of operators that pushes up fees because there's and less- and I'm going to push back on that too. Oh man. Um, <laughs> the United States has me. more bank is is more overbanked than any other major economy. It has more big banks than any other mm-hmm. major economy. There's a cap that no bank in the United States can have more than 10% of all deposits. Um, JP Morgan is slightly above mm-hmm. that cap right now, but basically it's at 10%. Um, look at any other major economy in the world and you'll see banks with 30-40% of deposits from Mexico, Spain, UK, Switzerland, you name it, right? So we have more competition in the US than almost anywhere else already. I would only, uh, at, at the risk of continuing this this debate in ad infinitum, um, I I would only say that we may have more competition, but also our banks tend to be a little less heavily regulated, like Heather was suggesting. So maybe the amount of competition we have isn't necessarily appropriate to the amount of regulation that we have to ensure things like low fees. So which is one thing we can all agree on, which is let's keep the CFPB and make sure that they they keep (laughs) on protecting consumers. Pounding the table, I think. (laughs) Let's have a numbers round. I feel like we should have a numbers round. Um, Jordan, what's your number? Uh, My number is two trillion. Uh, two trillion dollars. That's how much uh, the government of Saudi Arabia has suggested its state oil company, Saudi Aramco, could be worth at an IPO. Um, Talking of IPOs, that's that, and that's we amazing. Should, yeah, we should do a whole. However, uh, outsiders don't necessarily think it's worth two trillion. Wood McKenzie, which is a major oil industry analyst, thinks it's more like four hundred billion. And this is kind of like an existential thing for Saudi Arabia, like that gap, because this is their attempt to diversify away from oil, right? Like IPOing their state oil company is their their way of diversifying their whole damn economy. Yeah, they they're want- not going to sell a huge chunk of it, but they definitely want to see a high valuation. Well, what they uh, want to do with the money is turn it into a sovereign wealth fund that exactly. they can then get out of fucking oil. Yeah. <laughs> like, so they can, well, you know, have- But that's the problem. I mean, it's not crazy that you could have such a wide variation for this company because you're basically valuing it all on what you think future oil prices are. And right now, there's a massive debate about whether they'll ever go back over 100 again or, or that they will, you know, and what that price is going to be. But I feel like the world is 
quite good at valuing oil companies. I mean, we can look at any number of oil companies around the world up to and including ExxonMobil and that is a problem which is solved, right? I don't I don't think that is the reason for the difference between 400 billion and 2 trillion. Well, I think that's exact so right here, you know, when they talked about two trillion, that was based on a slightly idiosyncratic method of valuing an oil company, where they're basically just like, "Here are all our reserves, and we're going to multiply that out," which is just like not how you do it. Like, like when Mackenzie's like, "That's this is amateur hour." So it's still, I I think it is interesting though that there's this there are political dimensions to this this gap. That- it's very political, and we'll see whether it ever happens. There, are, I mean, the very decision about whether or not they're going to go ahead with this IPO is incredibly politicized. And yes, there are financial reasons that they want to diversify, but there are also like you know factions within the um, palace intrigue. The palace intrigue, yeah, within within, <laughs> within the monarchy, which are just as important, if not more so. Um, my number is 6.8%, which is talking of like foreign money. Um, you know how everyone said that the, you know, if Donald Trump wins, I'm moving to Canada. And of course, they never do. And it's no big deal. There is actually one form of moving to Canada, which does happen and has happened already, which is foreign tourism. The, fo- the, the, the amount of, <laughs> if you look at Google searches and flight searches, um, the amount of interest of people abroad in flying to the United States is down about 17%. And already just since the election, the number of foreign tourists coming into the U- US since the election is down 6.8%. And this is a real number. New York City alone get 60 billion dollars a year from tourism so that's happening and it's gonna it's gonna get worse before it gets better canada's lovely to visit really uh, yeah do, do visit canada vancouver beautiful city. i, I did Great last food. year fantastic Our mexico is very cheap right now with the peso <laughs> I'm, down. I'm, I'm planning a trip to mexico city right now with my wife yeah anyway uh heather your number 44 billion that uh, earlier this week, that's how much Tesla's market value was. And why I find that intriguing is that it was almost as much as Ford Motor Company, a company that has been around for 114 years. So Tesla... Yeah, but, but old age does not get you market cap, I'll tell you <laughs> This that. is true. This is true. But it's. Uh, I think it's also fascinating that a year ago, so these you know, Ford and Tesla are very close right now in valuation. A year ago, Ford was worth two times as much as Tesla. So that gives you a sense of the breakneck speed that uh, Tesla stock, at least, is, has been growing at. I, I will just come in and say, yes, that's true. Tesla stock is a great stock to own. Um, I'm a little bit weird about market cap as the be-all and end-all of, of um, corporate valuations. I prefer enterprise value because you can always just decide to optimize your balance sheet by raising more debt. That is a lot cheaper in terms of tax efficiency than equity. If you look at the enterprise value of Ford versus Tesla, Ford is much bigger and much more valuable. You and Larry Summers. That's like yeah. <laughs> enterprise value. He's all enterprise. about that too. It's, it's, it's really how you should be valuing companies rather than just market cap. But it's true from a pure stock market perspective. Tesla has been going up rather than down. On which note, I think that's it for us this week. I do need to um, thank you all for listening. Thanks to Zach Dynastein and Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers and the whole producer superstructure here at Panoply. So so check us out at 
iTunes.com slash Panoply or Panoply.fm or leave reviews on iTunes or subscribe to us on Overcast or do whatever you like. Just stay in touch. The email address, as ever, is slatemoney at slate.com. But most of all, I need to thank Heather Long for coming all the way in from Cable News Network to join us here on Slate Money. Thanks, Heather, for being here. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. If I had a million dollars, we wouldn't have to walk to the store. If I had a million dollars, we'd take a limousine cause it costs more. If I had a million dollars, we wouldn't have to eat craft dinners. But we would still eat craft dinners. Well, of course we would. We'd just eat more. We'd buy fancy ketchups like Dijon ketchup here. Yeah.